You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Room Now. We're covering the ACR, and we have a panel of gout experts. I'm going to ask my gout panel to introduce themselves. Tina? Hi, I'm Tahina Nioji. I'm a rheumatologist and epidemiologist from Boston University School of Medicine. Michael. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Michael Pillinger. I'm a rheumatologist and a uh, professor of medicine here at NYU uh, Grossman School of Medicine. James. Yeah, I'm Jim O'Dell from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And Mr. President. Hello, everybody. Ken Sag, uh, rheumatologist, outcomes researcher, and clinical trialist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. We're all very happy to be here with the ACR's new president, Ken Sag. Um, I'm very happy to be with such an astute group that uh, really knows the topic of gout. I'm going to ask each of them to sort of give you their favorite, one of their highlight um, abstracts from the meeting. Let's start with Tina. Okay, well, I was going to talk about the VA stop gout trial, but since uh, Jim is here, I think I will skip that one to allow him to talk about that one. Um, and since the New Zealand crew isn't here, maybe I can touch upon a couple of their studies that I thought was, uh, were really um, interesting. So one of the studies that I wanted to touch upon was uh, Lisa Stamp and Catherine Hill's pilot trial of omega-3 fatty acids. There's um, you know, some data to suggest anti-inflammatory effects of omega-3 fatty acids, and it's been studied in RA and OA and, and gout, and we've not quite seen um, positive, significant positive results yet. And in this uh, small pilot study, they did not see a beneficial effect on flares um, or serum urate, though biologically, I don't think we would have expected an effect on serum urate. Um, so I think some questions remain. Are we using the right dose? of uh, omega-3 fatty acids to truly get at an anti-inflammatory effect. And I'm hoping that the book is not closed yet on omega-3 fatty acids. And um, I'm happy to pass the baton on to the next person. Well, you know, that's it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition to the uh, data from um, the big vitamin D study, the vital study, where it looks like um, vitamin D and antioxidant foods may protect against autoimmunity. Uh, but I guess it's, the effect doesn't carry over to gout necessarily, at least gout disease activity. Are we yeah, asking? it might be, oh, I'm so sorry. It might just be also duration of uh, having the omega-3 fatty acid supplements. I, I think there's still a lot of questions and I'm hoping we can continue to study it because patients are always looking for additional things they can do for themselves to help their gout. Are we asking too much of omega-3? Shouldn't Maybe their role might be in prophylaxis more so than in um, like true management. Uh, yeah, and I, I do think they tried to uh, fashion this as a prophylaxis study okay. to see if you see a, a redu reduction in flares, which in this small study they did not. But um, I think formulation and dose and duration are still important questions. All right, Michael, what, what's one that you had? Sure. Well, uh, there are so many. Uh, I, I'm actually. Uh, I'm not going to call out the stopgap study since Jim is here, but, um, but uh, Nebraska has a lot of abstracts this year. And I'm just gonna share one that, that kind of tickled me, frankly. This is a study by Ted Michaels group, uh, Lindsay Helget, who I don't actually know, 
Uh, looking at uh, the VA national data set um, using a, a, a retrospective uh, pr uh, approach, looking at gout patients who were getting urate lowering therapy and looking at whether they achieved target or didn't achieve target or didn't get urate lowering therapy. And the primary outcome was mortality. And what I thought was really interesting about this was that they were able to um, basically dissect out uh, that the use of urate lowering therapy probably was associated with lower mortality. But if the patients reached target, then it was really associated with reduced mortality. And you know, we've been grappling with, we're gonna still grapple with whether treating to target has benefit beyond just the flare in your big toe or your tophus. Uh, and this was a really nice look at that where it wasn't just the medicine, it was the target. And uh, uh, Jim, kudos to, to Ted on this one. I liked it a lot. So yep. what's the prevailing opinion about urate lowering therapy? I mean, there's another abstract by Yoshida that said the same thing at this meeting. Um, does allopurinol and other ULT drugs truly lower mortality? I don't know yet, but I have to say that we do, we have a lot of retrospective studies um, that lean that way, some that don't. We have some small prospective studies and every single one of these papers that I've ever read ends with large prospective trials are necessary. And there are some studies going on now that might get at some of this. Uh, what I like about this is um, it's a VA study. I'm sitting in a VA as I speak to you right now, and it's a very classic gout population with a large data set. And I, I think uh, I think the group used it in a very effective manner. Yeah, and, and the closest we've really come in doing that in a truly prospective clinical trial way was was the CARE study and, and the, the FAST study, which you know were the studies that looked at fibuxistat against allopurinol um, in people or cardiovascular outcomes and. We're all aware that CARE has suggested a, a greater cardiovascular safety signal in um, the one study, but not in the other. The other study, the, the one done in Europe, FAST, was of a lower risk population. And the, the big dilemma is, is it that fibuxistat was a little more dangerous or was the study not well designed? There were a lot of dropouts. And comparing against allopurinol, was allopurinol just safer than fibuxistat? And Jack, as your question suggests, maybe they're both cardioprotective, but one is more so than the other. And so it's a very interesting, difficult question to study with an RCT and are probably our best chance is passed. Yeah, yeah, uh, Ken, I would, I would underline that the point that I think you were inferring, which is neither of those studies has a placebo. So we don't really know the, the, the changeover baseline. The other nice thing about this particular study, if you're going to do a retrospective study is you might as well use a big population and uh, the population in this study uh, was 506,981. So it probably got some of the noise out of the system. <laughs> so in full disclosure, I was uh, part of this study. And I think one of the challenges with this kind of a study where you're looking at um, kind of quality of care is those individuals that did, were on ULT and did get to target maybe many of their other comorbidities were also well-managed. So is this a marker of good care overall, or is this truly an effect of ULT and, and getting to target? 
I would argue whatever it is, it's good and important. And if someone has a good physician who's providing them good gout care, then probably they're getting good care for their other comorbidities as well. So there have been these big studies, CARES, and then FAST last year was a featured presentation. Um, Jim, people keep referring to some kind of study you were involved with. Um, <laughs> what's that about? Well, um, so first of all, I want to thank uh, all my fellow panelists, um, Ken, Tuhina, and, and Michael. All of them played critical roles in the study that has been referred to as Stop Gout. Uh, this was a um, 950-patient study uh, uh, done in the Veterans Hospital, funded by the VA. Uh, thank goodness for the VA funding mechanisms for some of these kind of trials. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to do this kind of thing without that. We, I wouldn't have been able to do the rocket trial in RA without the VA funding. So thank goodness for them. Um, but in, in, in this trial, uh, we uh, sought to do a number of things. First of all, the main hypothesis was that allopurinol is not inferior to fibuxostat. And um, we uh, you know, randomized these patients equally to appropriately titrated based upon ACR and ULAR recommendations, allopurinol versus fibuxostat. So we were also studying how, what you, how well you can do when you appropriately titrate those two urate-lowering therapies. And at the end of the, and, and primary endpoint of the study was flare rate. So problematic. <laughs> how do you define flares? What is a flare? And that's not the endpoint we wanted. That was the endpoint we chose from, um, uh, reviews from the VA uh, to satisfy, to try to satisfy the ACP's insistence that the only thing that's important in a gout patient is a flare. Uh, so primary outcome is flare rate in phase three, which was weeks 48 to 72 of the trial. At the end of the day, um, the, the allopurinol was shown to be non-inferior to fibuxostat. And uh, in fact, um, in, 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 um, Subsequent analysis is in superiority analysis, which are secondary post hoc analysis, it was actually superior in terms of less flares in phase, in phase three. So uh, that was an important finding um, since allopurinol is 19 times cheaper than fibuxostat, at least at the VA. And, uh, and of course, the, black, the, the boxed warning about fibuxostat that's been mentioned. Also in the trial, a key component was to study of folks with CKD3. After all, almost half of gout patients have chronic kidney disease. The majority of them are CKD3. We did not study CKD4 or 5. Not very many of those patients, hard to study, a bunch of other reasons. But we had 37% uh, of our patients had CKD3. So this is the first trial to really look at those patients in a, in a stepwise titrate to target approach. And, and in that group, allopurinol was also non-inferior uh, to fibuxostat, and those patients did uh, as well as the overall trial. So allopurinol is non-inferior to fibuxostat. CKD patients tolerate uh, appropriately titrated allopurinol and fibuxostat. Very, very important findings. As we all know, we fight with uh, other physicians all the time about whether we can give these drugs in people with renal insufficiency. So um, another really key component that we wanted to do with this trial is prove how effective a titrated target approach is. And uh, 
80% of our folks reached a target urate lowering therapy, which was defined as a mean serum uric acid level below six in the latter phases of, uh, in the latter part of phase uh, three, excuse me, phase two. Uh, so weeks 36 to 48. Importantly, if we look at the overall data for the whole trial, 99% of our patients were at target at least once during the trial. Uh, and that's, and that was just remarkable. It was, it was remarkable even to me and to all the investigators, I think 99%, that was pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, and so if you use a treat to target approach, we went from 100 to 800 milligrams of allopurinol. We went from 40 initially to 120 milligrams of fovuxostat. 99% of your patients are going to get to target. Uh, pretty dramatic. I should add that during the latter portion of the trial, about two thirds of the way through the trial, uh, we had two stoppages of the trial because of the, of the Fabuxostat data, initially when CARES was published and subsequently when the boxed warning came out. Uh, so it was, it was impressive that we were able to do the trial thanks to my fellow panelists and, and others, uh, even with that. But when we restarted the trial after the boxed warning came out, the FDA um, strongly encouraged us not to go to the 120 milligram dose and we brought people down. And that had implications uh, on some of the results of our trial. It didn't change the overall primary outcome. Uh, and we will have subsequent reports on that. It only affected a small percentage of our patients. Um, only 20 patients actually were affected by that in the whole, in the whole trial. Uh, but they'd had less in, in that small group, they had less good control of their uric acid because we weren't able to use 120 milligrams of muxostat. Finally, to the question that has come up on the boxed warning and the CARES trial results, and everybody knows uh, subsequent analysis of CARES have shown that probably the data was flawed by the 56% dropout rate that they had uh, from the trial and the, the deaths that occurred in those in the patients that had dropped out. And when they look at that, and Duhina is a real expert on this. Um, so we think that data from CARES was, was flawed for a number of reasons. We found no signal. After we restarted the trial, after the FDA's advice, we, we, had a, we put together a blinded adjudicated panel that adjudicated all cardiovascular events that occurred in the trial. And what we found was there were 10 MACE events in the allopurinol group and 10 in the fibuxostat group, exactly equal. So we saw no signal. Admittedly, our trial is much smaller than CARES and FAST, but we saw no signal whatsoever. If there was any signal at all, there was a slight signal in the other direction. Um, again, making us at least feel comfortable that fibuxostat is not um, you know, uh, causing more cardiovascular mortality. I think all of us were, were somewhat chagrined by the boxed warning. What we don't want is rheumatologists or anybody else not using effective urate therapy uh, for our patients because we have strong feelings about what the overall benefit of that was, uh, particularly with the abstract that uh, Michael just mentioned about uh, mortality uh, increase in, when, you're, when your uric acid is not below six. Jim, I was going to ask you um, what was a big surprise in the study, but you already revealed that in that 80, 90%, um, you know, staying within to getting to target because, you know, the studies about rheumatologists and getting to target, we think we're good, but less than 40% get to target. 
Um, so I think that was impressive. Does any, any other panelists have questions for Jim about this study? Um, I, I, it's, I'll ask a question that I sort of know the answer to, but I think it's worth mentioning. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it, we have a good opportunity to look here at, at tolerability because these folks were randomized, Jim. So, and I know you, you, meant, you discussed this a little when you gave the presentation, but in terms of worries about allopurinol with hypersensitivity or just in terms of intolerance of either drug or rashes that made people stop, was there any preference between one drug and the other? Yeah, so to specifically to the rash question, Michael, which is foremost on everybody's mind, and, and we were accused of being unethical because we didn't mandate uh, genetic testing for every individual in the trial, uh, you know, 5801 uh, and whatnot. We left that up to the investigator. We had three serious rashes in the study, two in the Febuxostat group and one in the allopurinol group. Uh, all of them resolved promptly. Uh, the allopurinol one was possible, was, was kind of coded as a possible allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome as a patient on 100 milligrams, because that's where we started. And to other, other uh, things that Tuhina has written in the past, we think that's going to largely mitigate against serious, um, serious allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome, and certainly did in that individual. So there was really no signal uh, there whatsoever. We're in the process of dissecting out other uh, unique things about tolerance and then, you know, going to do a, a look back and say, could we have predicted that in some way or another in this group versus that group? Uh, and so more to come uh, on that. But overall, remarkably well tolerated. There were more serious adverse events in the CKD patients than there were in the, in the other patients, but if they have CKD. I mean, that's not unexpected. They weren't uh, disproportionate from one group to the other. They were, uh, the, the they were numerically identical, uh, basically from Febuxostat allopurinol. There was a signal, um, and we're dissecting this down for a, a few more patients to have what was labeled as um, uh, uh, acute uh, uh, kidney in, uh, insufficiency. Um, in the um, allopurinol group, none of those were serious or long lasting, but we're, we're, we're dissecting that down. So overall, no real differences that um, you know rose rose to the top and, uh, and and should lead us to any concerns. It's got a lot of play during the meeting. So great study, Jim. Um, Ken, give us your favorite. Well, it's hard to pick, Jack. There were a lot of really great abstracts. Um, uh, my group was involved uh, with a couple that I'm excited about. One looking at an alert in the emergency department. Uh, Basically, it's a good idea. It's a good way to identify patients who you may worry are getting undertreated in the EDs. But let me instead focus on an abstract um, looking at pegloticase. We haven't really talked at all about pegloticase. And pegloticase is a very efficacious therapy for severe refractory gout, yet it's also highly immunogenic. And so there's been a lot of interest in thinking about ways to lower immunogenicity uh, we did a study published this year in ANR looking at giving uh, concomitant mycophenolate mofetil and showing um, a reduction in immunogenicity with pegloticase. There's another study underway looking at it with methotrexate. We await the results of that. And then presented at this meeting was the PROTECT study. And this is really kind of where the idea came from. You've got all these transplant patients who are already on immuno. Um, immunomodulatory therapy, and many of them have very severe gout, uh, particularly the kidney patients who 
you know, started off with CKD, one of the major risk factors for gout. And so in this very small uh, preliminary report, the bottom line is, is it looks like pegloticase is, is safe and um, possibly efficacious in our transplant patients. And that's been our anecdotal experience in using it in that population. So this is finally an opportunity to put together at least sort of a case series in an open label study and get a little more understanding of how we can use pegloticase in a wider, more effective way at a population level. So that was abstract 665. There were about 20 patients in that, Ken. What was the indication? Like, did they, did they have gout? Did they have topacious gout? Were they not controlled? Well, that's, it has to be uncontrolled. And um, normally, I'll tell you in our practice, we don't, we don't use pegloticase unless you've got TOFI. I mean, it's just, it's hard to get it approved. It's costly. Um, but it's, you know, remarkable as a debulking agent in people with TOFI. And so that's a real a prominent circumstance. Occasionally, we'll have a person that really has truly treatment refractory gout despite uh, appropriate doses of allopurinol and, and or fibuxostat. And there, that might be another indication. But, um, you know, I think we want to really focus in on that group of really difficult patients that all of our, uh, all the people on this call and many of our colleagues at, at major centers are seeing. And it's, it's a challenging group. It, yeah, that, that transplant story, Ken, is I think is really interesting because the first, um, you know, the, the first whiff we had about the idea of immunosuppression came out from a, a small study that uh, Mike uh, Hirsch, Hirschfeld did uh, from Duke, um, where he was trying to see if you could spread the uh, pegloticase out to Q3 weeks, but he include, included transplant patients uh, as well as non-transplant patients. And the transplant patients were all on immunosuppressants, and they pretty much tolerated the pegloticase, and the others had the usual, uh, the usual problems. So it's nice to see an abstract that comes around. Yeah. Well, it's, not, it's not a new idea. We've been doing this for years with our biologics in rheumatoid arthritis and spondyloarthritis, where we give a little methotrexate with a, um, a monoclonal antibody. And yeah, it does attenuate HACA and other things. So it's, it makes some some sense to rheumatologists. The, the, the other thing I, I would tell the audience is I, you mentioned uh, the methotrexate study that we're waiting for. Uh, it's the mirror trial and we're waiting for it, but they unblinded it and they announced it as a, as a public relations matter on their website. And in fact, um, the patients in the methotrexate group uh, had, uh, I won't go into the details, but basically had a 70% success rate with the drug compared to 40% without the drug, which matched the historical control. So almost doubled the tolerability. That's pretty impressive, I think. Yeah, pretty similar to what we saw with mycophenolate. So I think this qualifies as gout gossip. I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> I think it's nonetheless important to say. Ken, a, a quick hit about um, LO5, late-breaking one with you and Bob Turkeltab on a new drug to look to Golixostat. <laughs> yeah, you know, so there's a lot under development, as I think a lot of rheumatologists and most gutologists realize. It's, um, it's surprising that uh, we don't have more drugs in gout. I mean, gout is our most common inflammatory disease overall at a population level, yet compare the armamentarium in gout versus RA, and it's, it's dramatic. 
So finally, there's a pipeline, and there's a bunch of drugs that both are uh, affect urate uh, metabolism, uh, similar to allopurinol and pubuxostat, and then there's a bunch of uricosurics that are under development. You can go to clinicaltrials.gov and see what's you know being uh, developed. But uh, hopefully, in the next couple of years, we'll, we'll have some new therapies. But yes, the, the late breaker does suggest some um, efficacy of of a new uh, drug that. Um, in, inhibits uh, uric acid production. I want to bring up a, a short comment um, uh, from another late breaker. Um, Jazz Singh presented L16 yesterday where he talked about breakthrough infections in uh, rheumatic disease patients who have been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, 70% of whom vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. Um, in the list of diseases that seem to have more breakthrough infections, out was, I think, third on the list. It was uh, the highest was uh, polymyositis, dermatomyositis, then RA, and I think then gout. Um, and not things like scleroderma lupus and uh, other things. Is this panel at all surprised by that information? Oh, and by the way, urate lowering therapy was not a risk factor for breakthrough infection. It didn't seem to factor into it in either, either way. But I was a little surprised by the inclusion of gout. Jim, what do you think of that? Well, uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, as we know, um, uh, gout is associated with some comorbidities, uh, <laughs> to kind of understate it. Uh, but also, uh, we also are very much aware that gout patients get accused of having lots of different infections that they don't actually have. I mean, a common consult on the wards is a cellulitis, which of course isn't cellulitis at all, it's gout. Another abstract presented at this meeting by one of our uh, medical students was uh, that gout is associated with an increased risk of amputation. Uh, so kind of a fun abstract, unless you were one of the participants. No, it's, uh, not, it's not fun at all, because we've all seen that. And we've yeah. all been consulted on a patient who's already had their toe chopped off for osteomyelitis that had a tophus in their toe. And that's yeah. a very disconcerting consult when uh, the orthopedist had beat you to, uh, to the case. So, so the second patient enrolled in stop gout had 17 digits. Uh, he'd lost three of them to osteomyelitis, as you mentioned, Ken. So for, because of the comorbidities, because of the confusion uh, and whatnot, I'm not at all surprised by that finding, Jack. Yeah, we also found in a um, population-based study in Sweden that uh, in terms of cause-specific mortality infection, kind of popped up. So cardiovascular disease we expected, but we also found renal disease as um, actually the highest relative risk for uh, cause-specific mortality, but infection was there as well. And, and so those were some of our thoughts, um, uh, comorbidity-related diabetes, um, and, and also, you know, are people using prednisone a lot for their flares, et cetera. So um, in this particular case, uh, you know, it's breakthrough infection um, after COVID vaccination. So um, I would put my money on the comorbidities, making them more immunocompromised. We know that diabetes is a big risk factor for, for COVID. I want to end with each of you giving a 30 seconds on something else that you like from the meeting. Tina, do you have another one that you want to highlight? Sure. I think um, going back again to the New Zealand group, since they're not able to join us, um, Nicola Dalbeth and colleagues presented a really interesting small trial in inosine. And it, it was um, a post hoc analysis from a trial. And the thinking here is that we're still trying to figure out hyperuricemia is 
bad for kidney disease and if targeting hyperuricemia can improve renal function. In this post-talk analysis of um, inosine, which if I remember correctly, they were, it was a trial for cognitive endpoints, if anyone remembers the, the, the trial. Um, and so they found that uh, serum urate did increase, but there was no impact on renal function. So perhaps at least extra renal hyperuricemia doesn't seem to affect renal function, at least for the duration that was followed in this trial. So the, this question of hyperuricemia and impact on other comorbidities like renal insufficiency and targeting treatment of hyperuricemia to ameliorate renal insufficiency remains an unanswered question. Okay. Jim, do you have a, another one that you want to, I, I like the, yeah. the medical student one, it's kind of scary, but I like you mentioning that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, other than that, staying in the gout world, I think we've covered uh, all the things I'd want to bring uh, up, Jack. Thank you. Okay. Michael, uh, I'm going to suggest you say something about your um, deck study on the spine. I think that um, rheumatologists have occasionally flirted with, could this be gout affecting the LS spine? Can you briefly describe that? Sure. Uh, briefly and shamelessly, Jack. Um, so you, you're, <laughs> you're right. There are some 160 case reports of gout in the spine that all start uh, with the sentence, gout in the spine is a relatively rare condition. Um, it, that kind of uh, gout in the spine probably is because almost all of those case reports are a severe disease with tophaceous compression, the kind of thing that uh, in the foot ends up with an amputation. But we, Mike Toprover in my group decided to have, have a look and try to establish a denominator of what's there. And so he, um, he did a dual energy CT study of the lumbar sacral spine. He prospectively enrolled 50 gout patients, uh, half tophaceous, half not, I won't talk about that, and 25 controls, and they all got decked, and they all got a number of other measurements. Um, there are some technical issues that we're still working through about how to interpret the numbers, but the bottom line is that roughly 50% of the gout patients seem to have evidence of urate deposition in the spine. Uh, we're trying to see whether that correlates with nonspecific low back pain in at least some of the patients. We had a pretty good case report of one patient who had severe low back pain and bad gout, and the back pain went away when we treated the gout. Um, but uh, I, I think the, the, the real point about the study is just to remind us that uh, urate is, you know, potentially an, equally, an equal opportunity depositor, and it's probably in more places than we think it is. And, um, you know, whether DECT is the right way to find that or there are other ways to think about it, you know, we, we talk less than we used to about this idea of total body urate burden, but we still do. But what do we mean? We mean there's urate socked away in places, and this may be part of that. Michael, in that regard, I was in VA clinic the other day, and, and at the level of anecdotes, uh, a patient came in and he was extremely grateful. He said, thanks, doc, you, sa you saved me a prostate operation. And I, <laughs> I looked at him and, I, and he said, I had an MRI a few months back, uh, six months back, and, and they showed these nodules in my prostate. Uh, and and uh, then I put it off and I put it off and I just had my most recent MRI and they were gone. <gasps> this and is he said, he said uh, I think it's because you've been treating my gout 
Uh, <laughs> and so I thought, well, okay, I'll take that credit. And 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 it turns out, of course, as you as you know, I didn't at the time. It's it is well reported, uh, you know, TOFI in the prostate or whatever. Whether that's what happened in this guy, I don't know or not. But it speaks to your point about these deposits are everywhere. Yeah, there's uh, there are some studies about prostatitis and seeing deposition in, in, in tissue. Yeah. I do want to correct myself. The inosine trial was for bone health, not cognitive. So I apologize for that. But there was a cognitive with inosine. There was. That's why I was thinking about that. Yeah. So Ken, do you want to end uh, with more scariness in gout or something more optimistic? <laughs> well, you know, I have a uh, foot in the gout world and another foot in the bone world. And uh, I mentioned already the vital study that was presented the large uh, vitamin D and antioxidant study that I think was very, uh, Karen Kostenbader presented that data, very um, intriguing that uh, you know maybe vitamin D is really beneficial and maybe some antioxidants are beneficial in slowing down the development of immune-mediated illness. So that I think was very intriguing. There were a couple of bone abstracts that um, caught my attention. We saw more sub-analyses of denosumab versus uh, residronate in RA patients. It, you know, not surprisingly looks to increase bone density a little more. And then, um, it, you know, in contrast to the, the gout uh, story, osteoporosis has a very, very narrow drug development pipeline. And so we really are excited about anything at all that looks even remarkably promising or remotely promising and um, a group out of Mass General presented some preliminary uh, lab data only, suggesting that there may be um, some new approaches to developing osteoanabolic agents. So that's, I think, where excitement should be in bone, and hopefully, eventually, we'll, we'll again someday see some new drugs in osteoporosis. Well, speaking of bone, uh, there was a DEX study of intensive uh, ULT versus standard and uh, no impact on bone erosions for gout using dual energy CT. The good thing is both groups had reduction in flares, reduction in serum urate. So I think it provides some clinical um, input regarding how aggressive do we need to be, but unfortunately no impact on bony erosions yet for the treatments that we're using. How long would that study have to be though? You know, uh, I wouldn't expect a six month turnaround or something like that. Yeah. yeah I don't recall off the top of my head how long it was, but um, uh, I know a previous study was, I think, two years. I didn't, I didn't recall yeah. this one. Well, we, uh, we previously presented some data with denosumab, um, looking at it for slowing down erosions. And the same story, it's, it's just real difficult to see. And we didn't find uh, efficacy with denosumab in preventing uh, gouty erosions. Uh, of course, the real lesson about this is that it's probably better to treat the patient before they get erosions. Yeah. Well said. Uh, this, this is the kind of leadership we need. This is absolutely what people are tuning in for. I want to thank the panel for really a great discussion and really a lot of clinically useful information that people can carry forward. Uh, I hope you all survive the ACR really well. We look forward to seeing you next year. Take care. In person. Thank you. Jack. Hey, Jack, I'm looking forward to our next golf game. Oh, Jim, please. He has pictures <laughs> of me and my golf scores. It's just not pretty. <laughs> I'm just hoping that, the, that there's a fire somewhere and my pictures go with it. Yeah, yeah I told you the flood uh, took care of the evidence, but actually I, I found it. So so uh, you're still on the hook. So, oh, all right, we're going we're to have to edit this out. All right, goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>